Hey everybody, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. This is a movie podcast where we look at movies in the context of spirituality. This week we're talking about a classic Pulp Fiction. Mike, uh, what is Pulp Fiction? Well, John, uh, Pulp Fiction is this sequel to Greece where we find the heartwarming story of two working class burger connoisseurs who find themselves in a real pickle in this frolicking romp about faith, Jesus. redemption, and hope. And the interesting characters you meet along the path of following your dreams. What happens when roads collide and strangers must learn to dance to a different tune? Find out in this good-hearted parable about God, Jesus, spirituality, and the power of love. Oh my God. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Actually, I want you to know, as soon as you said Greece, I, I was drinking something and I almost spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, I had to like walk, kind of get away from the microphone real quick because I was afraid. That was my goal. Wet. Hey, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'm joined, as always, by my friend uh, Mike Overstreet. Hello. Uh, like we said, this week we're talking about Pulp Fiction. Uh, spoilers, by the way, if you haven't seen this movie, it is. Uh, a classic from 1994 we are just going to be going kind of straight in so again if you haven't seen it please just stop watching pulp fiction is a groundbreaking 1994 movie it revolutionized independent filmmaking made its writer director quentin tarantino an overnight superstar and for the last 30 years has kind of been the introduction i think for millions of young adults into the world of highbrow art film uh, certainly that's my relationship with it. I think I first saw it when I was probably 15 or 16 because I had heard so much about it as being this pantheon, this icon of this kind of movie. And it was not at all what I expected. And it completely blew me away. And I've probably rewatched it, if not more than any other movie, almost more than any other movie. Uh, Mike, what is your re relationship with this movie? Yeah, I actually saw this movie like way too young. I think I saw it when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 because my dad is my dad. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Thanks, dad. This um, has come up. This has come up a couple times. What oh, yeah. was the other one? Yeah. Uh, Alien is a big one um, that yeah. I saw super young. Blade Runner, you mentioned too. Yep. Saw Blade you Runner saw young. relatively young. Yeah. And, and this one in particular, though, I mean, it has a sodomy scene with a samurai sword that did not yeah. register or make any sense to me at that age. But obviously, it's a movie that is uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, I came back to it much later, probably again in the end of high school, and then really got into it in college, where I kind of put it on its pedestal that it kind of stands on, probably in my cinematic hall of fame. Um, yeah, I would say until Inglorious Bastards, it's my favorite Tarantino movie, um, and I think it's. I mean, masterpiece might be too strong, but it's it's close. It's pretty close. Yeah, you know, it's funny you made the comparison to to, or you talked a second about *Glorious Bastards*. Uh, watching it this week, I started thinking a lot about his canon. You know, all of his movies. The thing that's really surprising to me 
is that obviously this was a very revolutionary movie at the time compared to other movies that had come before it. Looking back on it, it still kind of stands alone compared at least to the rest of Tarantino's stuff. In my opinion, I was surprised at how different it felt. Um, To name one thing, the emotional stakes are so much lower than any of his other movies. Absolutely. In my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It's weirdly, and I couldn't decide if it was detached or lighthearted or some combination. Um, But yeah, compared to even like Reservoir Dogs, which is the closest kind of stylistic movie, it's so much less intense. It's so much more, in a sense, playful. Um, Again, low stakes for whatever that means, for whatever that's worth. Uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? Compared to his other movies, how does it, is it, broadly similar does it kind of stand alone no i think it's i mean it is very unique and maybe it's only unique in the sense that it really and i don't i don't want to say this all the time i don't want to sound disparaging to tarantino it, it's one of the films where he hits his sweet spot where it's it is his classic humor sure. it is his classic stylized pulp you know in which it's very um uncaring it's very frivolous it's very um, exciting, flashy, you know, uh, kind of a very intentionally form over function. I don't even know if that's the right phrase, but it's it's just a perfect combination of that with some mm-hmm. of his more hard-hitting scenes, with some of his more um, powerful, more nuanced ways of having humor immediately switch to violence or um, having yeah. shock value, right? And I think in some of his other films, he's not as effective at blending either those transitions Mm -hmm. or those different styles or even what you're talking about the emotion and the action or whatever you want to say yeah those are a little more jarring in this one quite frankly i mean i was sitting with that we'll talk about it later the final scene with the cafe is one of the most well done jarring transitions to something that the rest of the film lacks which is deep philosophy which is intense emotion um real character depth in which the movie doesn't seem that interested in until the end. Right. So yeah, it's funny you say that because I think the first time I saw it and to this day, I think that my journey with the movie has largely been appreciating the rest of the movie besides the end, because that the first time I watched it, I think if I had stopped watching before that last diner scene, I would have told you, I'm not sure if that was a good movie. Yeah. And that last scene was sort of the the thing that drew me into the rest of the movie, if that made sense. It's so good. And the dialogue is, is su- it, you're right, it just suddenly becomes a significantly deeper movie. And it kind of, in my, in my experience, it, it just kind of drew me into, I really want to get into the rest of this movie now. I want to rewatch it and find the ways. And it rewards that, I think, as, as you go back to it. It, it keeps giving you so the rest of it is as deep, but you only notice it the first time or I only noticed it the first time right at the end there with that that whole scene, uh, which is just one of it's got to be one of the best things he ever wrote. Really. I think so. I mean, I think it it's so interesting when we compare it to Inglorious Bastards, which I think a lot of people assume is. I think second- you and I would both say is. is either his best movie or his second. Best yeah. Movie, I, right? I was just gonna say these are one and two for most people that I've talked to. Yeah. Um, and it's so interesting because that movie opens with a scene of this calendar caliber, right? Yeah. Where it starts with this 
amazingly written, super tense dialogue that essentially sets the philosophy and the tone um, that whether the scene captures the tone of the rest of the movie, it, that's not necessarily the case. But what you remember from yeah. that scene washes over how you see even significantly lighter scenes over the rest of the movie. Right. Um, and this kind of yeah, does that I in totally reverse. Agree. I mean, I rewatched this movie and I have that last scene in mind every time Jules and and Vincent are on the on on the screen from the start, you know, yeah. of the transformation that's yeah. going to take place and the philosophy there at the end. So definitely mm-hmm. uh, kind of. And then so, you know, dovetailing from there into, well, I guess I have a few questions. And the first one is based on a text you sent me three days ago. So uh, obviously we rewatch uh, the movies the week of to kind of get a, a better idea of sort of what we're looking at. And, and, you know, cause also we hadn't seen it in a while. Uh, so you texted me, I'm rewatching Pulp Fiction. I don't know how to feel. I'm trying to decide if I enjoy rewatching it beyond certain scenes. Um, it's like, I'm objectively blown away by it, but not sure if I love watching the whole thing. It might be the length or the style. I can't tell. I just want you to expand on that a little bit because in a sense, I actually felt similar in terms of it, it's a, for a movie I've rewatched this much, it's still not a movie I put on very casually. Yeah. You know, it's not like uh, Hunt for October. No, get out of here. <laughs> it's, I mean it though. I mean it though. I mean, obviously one of the best movies ever made. We all agree on that. But I think <sighs> the thing that it is, uh, you, you, you didn't, you didn't say anything there about. Oh, I vomited. We all agree on that. Go on. Okay, cool. Obviously one of the best movies ever made, but certainly rewatchable especially because it's a very light watch i just throw it on and kind of pay attention and kind of don't despite saying earlier that this is a relatively low emotional stakes movie for tarantino which i do think is true it's still not a light watch right you don't put it i don't ever put this on and just have it on in the background but I have rewatched it a lot. So I don't know. It sits in this weird space for me. Uh, what do you think about? It? So you were saying it, it was kind of difficult to rewatch for you. Yeah. And I guess I noticed kind of a few things. I think, I think the most obvious one is I always forget how long it is. Um, and that time, two and a half hours, I think it's two forty-five actually. Um, oh, is it? Yeah. It's, it's yeah. long. It's pretty long. And I think part of that builds into the second point, which is, I mean, I'm going to be honest, the the Bruce Willis butch section is a tough, tough watch. I mean, um, the part with his girlfriend, uh, I'm trying to think of how to be kind and Christian here. Uh, She is I don't know (laughs) if she's trying to give a bad performance at Tarantino's direction or if it just is a bad performance, (laughs) but she is like unwatchable to me like she is obnoxious she is like their their conversation isn't even the interesting style of tarantino dialogue like when they're talking about oral pleasure i'm just like what what am i watching <laughs> like what am i what watching? am i watching or yeah. the pot belly conversation i'm like I, what is this yeah. movie so like in eat and even the good parts of their of his story arc is about sodomy or rape and it's about uh a <laughs> pretty graphic it's the most graphic part of the movie right so yeah. it's a tough watch there too because it's it's a bunch of sadists and uh mm-hmm. it's uncomfortable so yeah it's it's just like that section is hard it's a long movie yeah. 
and then I have two other points, but first I, I, you were going to throw in a response. It, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, I, I definitely agree in terms of that section. I do have a, a maybe a bad habit. I, I'm, I don't know if I'll say that. I definitely do have a habit of kind of skimming that scene. You press the forward arrow a few times on Netflix and you're like, we don't, we can kind of go through this at five second intervals. We, we don't need to sit through all of it. I think largely what's happening there too the the whole movie has this kind of and a lot of people talk about this movie in the context of postmodernism it has this kind of disassociated decentered feeling to it yeah but i think where in other cases that sort of spinning out of control uh works because stylistically you're so on board i'm thinking specifically of the the entire mia and vincent right like in a way their dialogue is similar in terms of we're kind of spinning out of control like it's kind of just going all these weird directions but there it's working towards these characters that i care about and it's it's doing in a way that's keeping me stylistically entertained i think the problem with that scene or with that whole character and that whole part. Um, and I do think it's the character. I don't think it's the actress. Cause I think the way it's written, she doesn't have anything to do besides that, that kind of line. Sure. Yeah. And, and partially it's that I don't know and don't care about these characters as much, but I think mostly it's that stylistically it's so different than the rest of the movie. And I'm not even as it's when spinning think- out of control, I don't care enough to follow it, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. I, I think, think I that know. actually, well, I think that fills into the other major thing that I kind of connected to on this rewatch, which is, and it's so funny because this is one of the greatest qualities of this film is that Tarantino uh-huh. as a director is just so freaking cool. He's just yeah. like cool, you know, like, and I yeah. think actually the Mia scene is a perfect example that un- the uncomfortable, when she talks about sharing an uncomfortable silence, and then the way that it's shot of him, like sipping the milkshake and the close ups and the music in the background and then the dialogue that follows it. And then the twist scene, right? Like every part of yeah. that as a director, you're just like, one, this guy's got some nuts on him. Tarantino does to yeah. be like, this is going to yeah. be an entire scene in my film and it's going to work flawlessly. And it's going to be, be one of the most rewatchable scenes of all time, probably. which is yeah. wild when you think about the ingredients for it. It I mean, should not work. Yes. Yeah, like Jackrabbit Slim is the creepiest place on Earth. But anyway, <laughs> um, like it's amazing. You would you would you wait, wait, you wouldn't get reservations at no, Jackrabbit. No, that's, Slim's? A, that's a hard pass for me. Um, but well, there goes my uh, my plans for next time you visit. I don't, I don't know. What, <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do now. But like that's that's what. But while that's the strength, like the strength of this film is that there are scenes that I'm watching that I will never look away from because they're just so unbelievably cool stylistically and what they're talking about in in his. Obviously, it's beat into death that he's a, amazing at choosing songs like background music. Yeah. But it also in a weird way makes his this movie in particular. And I think this is intentional. So it's not like I don't think this is a bad thing necessarily, but it makes this movie almost entirely unrelatable. Like there are conversations yeah. in it, like the burger conversation where you're like, Oh, I could have this conversation with a friend or the foot massage mm-hmm. conversation. You're like, Oh yeah, that's like BSing with, with John over a beer about something stupid. Yeah, yeah. But then there are other scenes where like no human being is this cool all the time. 
right? <laughs> it's just like yeah, he, it, he, it, real people do not talk like this. Hundred percent. Yeah, because yeah. there's something about that on the rewatch that makes the movie feel more detached than maybe it should. When I'm first watching it, yeah. I'm entranced. The coolness sucks mm-hmm. me in. You're just like I've never seen this something so cool on a screen. Yeah, but yeah. on the rewatch, once you know what he's doing, I, I just found myself uh, scene shooting, like tuning in for mm-hmm. specific scenes and not as in, in is drawn in by that factor as I am in the past. So I don't know if that makes sense. Would you I- say would you say it's a style substance problem as yeah. in it's, yeah. it's too stylish and not enough substance, at I least just- at least when it doesn't work in, in some scenes like like the bruce willis scenes yeah which is also probably why that scene is so just weirdly different from the rest of the movie because none of those characters are cool um yeah. but anyway that's i'll stop being mean to them um <laughs> yeah and i don't want to say it's style over substance though i do would argue that the reason he calls it pulp fiction at least to some degree is that he's flashing it in our face that he's going to give us a movie that is style over substance yeah um yeah but because I, I don't I don't want to say that because it makes it sound like it's a bad thing. And I don't think it is. Yeah, I think it's an actually I, I love that point. Film. I would go even farther and say that there's this sense of I, I think that's maybe the best trick of the movie is that. And, and this goes back to that final scene. I think the movie makes you think that it is a triumph of style. Like from the outset, it is trying to look and act and feel cool. And it is. And you're in because you're like, and in a sense, there's something really gutsy to that because that's sort of taboo when you're making quote unquote high art, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you're, you're supposed to be forefronting the, the, the realness beneath the surface. And there's something really empowering that I think with this kind of movie, he's just like, screw that i'm just going this is good this is just going to be cool who cares um but that's what makes the last scene so great is it's kind of a twist on the twist i think because suddenly it becomes oh there's real substance here yeah he's really he's actually digging into some really interesting themes and he's he gets to have his cake and eat it too i mean i think it's part of why he's one of the best filmmakers ever yeah Um, that kind of move of going yeah he's okay he's going places i think give it another few years once he makes that star trek movie he's been talking about that's when i can't wait that's That's when when it's going to be happening can you imagine all the oral pleasure that's going to be in that movie i jesus i uh am not being sarcastic that that sounds amazing like like the the tarantino star trek movie that idea sounds incredible and i would watch that in a heartbeat Okay, so we've kind of been talking about this, uh, but just to sort of zero in on this and, and to cover any other bases, you know, I'm kind of curious what to you makes this movie great. We've talked about the way that it is stylistically so, so cool. We've talked about the final scene, the way that the substance does come through in the movie. Um, is there anything else you can... I have a couple things, but can you think of other things in terms of just why this is a movie that works so well. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because on one hand, I think the first thing I would bring up is that it really showcases, and we kind of hinted at this earlier, but it showcases a perfect balance of Tarantino's ability to take the silly slash cool 
and then flip so quickly into horror and violence um, in a yeah. way that is effective and not just uncomfortable or out of like in a way that feels natural in a sense. Um, I yeah. mean, I think about it the best. I think the best example is uh, Vincent and Jules opening scene in the apartment, right? In which that yeah. entire thing is just hilarious to some degree. And then mm-hmm. obviously the tension just starts to build and build and build. And then it becomes a triple murder. Right. And I had the moment- to sort of remind myself, sorry, real quick. I had to kind of remind myself watching it that that first scene caught me so off guard the yeah. first time I was watching it. When he it. shoots the guy on the so- couch, it's yeah. just like, whoa. Yeah. You're so with them until that point. You're like, oh, these guys are great. They're kind of fun. They're, you know, whatever. And then suddenly it gets so intense so quick. And you're right. Yeah. It becomes kind of horrifying, really. Well, and I was even thinking about it with, I mean, obviously, I always think about that scene. I think about the scene where they kill Marvin is hilarious, um, but it is a perfect balance of like they just killed this innocent person. And yet there's like that you hit, probably hit a bump or something. Um, and obviously he's <laughs> yeah. like cracking jokes about divine intervention before it happens. And it it's just like a, his his ability to blend those things together is phenomenal in an effective oh, yeah. way. But I was even thinking about it with like the drug scene where it's like the first time Tarantino or Travolta, sorry, does drugs. It's like this super cool shot. Like, look how cool this is scene. And obviously it's yeah. building to when Mia does the drugs at the end and it's everything but <laughs> right. And it's just yeah. I mean, I'll never get the shot of that needle in her chest out of my head or when he first comes yeah. out and she has like the bile coming out of her mouth. You know, that's the um, one I was going to say that every time I'm like, oh, geez. I got yeah. real rough real fast. But it's so crazy yeah. how we can layer these things or or connect these things on and put them on top of each other. Um, just, I don't know, the horror, the coolness, the silly, the violence. It, it, it's masterful. Yeah. The tonality shifts of the movie. It's one of those things where if you do it wrong, it's jarring and really and disorienting and bad. Which this and movie, can we this just is admit? Where it's done right. This movie could have been a terrible movie in someone else's hands. Like, oh, my God. Right. Well, one of my favorite quotes is um, Roger Ebert. I don't know if he said this in his original review or in his like one of those re-reviews that he does. But I remember reading him saying that the first time he saw this movie, he left the theater and he said that was either the best movie I've seen this year or the worst movie I've seen this year. Mm-hmm. And he had to go back to watch it again. And then he said, yeah, that was the best movie I've seen this year. Uh, but it does yeah, that. Absolutely. It's so, it is so tonally jarring and strong and, and it's walking a relatively thin line in a sense. I think we now know, cause he's had a 30 year career. That's been amazing. We've kind of forgotten how, like like miraculous that's a little dramatic but how miraculous his ability is as a filmmaker right we've kind of we kind of take it for granted now oh this guy can make these crazy things work because he's Quentin tarantino and he's an amazing writer director but he is and especially going back to this kind of beginning moments uh it really comes across so yeah i totally agree with that assessment i would also say i I did i did throw the word out before postmodernism I think one of the strengths of the movie is that it it obfuscates so much of what it's talking about. Uh, a great counterexample, actually a great counterexample to this movie for several reasons, is the other uh, big 1994 hit that went on to win 
most Academy Awards over Pulp Fiction. I'm talking, of course, about Forrest Gump. Just the worst. Uh, Mike's favorite movie, right? Yeah. You you love it. Love it. Yeah. If nothing else, I do. Part of me wants to say it's underrated because the the backlash has been so strong. But then I rewatch it and I'm like, no, this movie sucks. But for uh, Pulp Fiction has strong thematic overtones. But again, I think a huge part of that postmodern idealism of the movie is that it's working so hard to obfuscate that, to decenter, to to make you know the the non chronology of the movie the way that there's really no through line you can't yeah, follow yeah. one character through the whole movie um it's got an ensemble cast it's it's situations are just very bizarre and sort of unrelated and happening you know just all over each other and all these different things all of that serves i think to make the movie kind of richer to to revisit it's a movie you think about i don't yeah. know of anyone who ever thinks about forrest gump because no, you yeah, know exactly yeah. what it's telling you from the first moment it's like oh this is very it's the exact opposite of that and don't get me wrong there's a certain strength to being very clear with your themes and ideas but there's something way more artistically interesting to a certain extent to to sort of do this movie's trick of Oh my! Oh my gosh! I don't know exactly what that was. I can't. I couldn't tell you in a sentence what is Pulp Fiction, right? Uh, that's part. I don't know. That that's something I always latch onto. Of like that is what's working so well in this movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Anything else in terms of what what makes this great? Obviously, this is. I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. I maybe should have done research. Oh, by the way, speaking of research, three hours, two hours, fifty eight minutes. Uh, <laughs> long movie. What's he doing? Um, I'm pretty sure this is the breakout role for Samuel L. Jackson, right? Yeah, so that's what I was going to bring up. He, he had done some stuff, but... I was going to yeah, say, go what makes this movie so great is Tarantino's knack of casting. I mean, one, oh, he yeah. has... It's well documented, but he has this unability, unbelievable ability to find seemingly washed up actors and to put them into a perfect role, right? I mean... I obviously yeah. Travolta and this is where it started really yeah, yeah yeah and 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 Jackson is undiscovered before this but then on top of that beyond his ability to find them it's also just to perfectly cast people because barring Willis's mm-hmm. girlfriend aside and maybe she is perfectly cast and I just don't like the role um <laughs> you know I I always think of you know Harvey Cattell as the wolf is that not the coolest character oh yeah maybe in any Tarantino movie he's just flawless in that role right and and Harvey Cattell I love him but he's not made for every movie you know and no and he just does that over and over and over again I mean this movie has some of the best cast people I have ever seen in a movie whether it's Uma Thurman yeah you know obviously Marcellus Wallace as a character is already unbelievable but when you put Vin, ving rames in there ving rames there ving rames right? kills it man he's amazing in this movie i, I forgot that too i was like oh my god uh i'm even gonna give a shout out to uh, now i gotta look up his name ringo who's the who's the actor I know, tim I roth tim roth is amazing you know tim roth kills it in the, and it's such a small part he's on the screen for probably 10 minutes and i always think about that character when i think about this movie uh yeah yeah, I, I think the, the casting is unbelievable. And it has to be noted, it's not just, you kind of hinted at this, it's not just casting and it's not just writing. 
it's actual directing too, right? Yes. He's pulling yes. these performances out of them. He's he's getting them into these spots. He knows how you know what he wants to see out of these characters. Uh yeah, and it's it's just great. I it's it's a great movie to watch if you love movies and if you love watching good acting Absolutely. and good characters. And I mean, I even sat with that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. One of my hot takes from this rewatch is that the Christopher Walken scene is one of the funniest scenes in cinematic history. Um, it's just, <laughs> I totally agree. It's just I'm completely unbelievable. There. And on top of that, Christopher Walken might give a deliverance of that line or the entire story that is deserving of an Oscar. I mean, when he yeah, does the I what I try to remember, he says, he says five long years. He wore it in his ass he died of dysentery and it's like he just like throws that sideline out and you're just like it's amazing this is such a great line delivery (laughs) that i'll tell you the special thing about that scene is i always kind of forget it's coming yes and that's what makes it even better uh it may actually be my favorite scene in the movie but yeah it it, i forgot about that it's such an amazing part of, of the movie and again, um, it's like that scene's weird without Walken. It's like if he does not think of Christopher Walken yeah. to play that role, that's just a it's a weird scene. It does not work. But Walken yeah. crushes Almost it. any other character or actor you can think of doesn't doesn't play it, right? Yeah. Hundred yeah. percent. Um I'm going to move. We can cover if you have more stuff for what makes it great. We can get to it in a second. I do want to get real quick. uh, So we don't go too hard. Just like fawning over the movie. What holds this back from being even better? Uh, I'm going to go ahead throw out number one. Quentin Tarantino as the character of I can't remember his name. It doesn't matter. Uh, Is it Jimmy? The guy who says the end doesn't matter a lot. First of all, he writes himself. He he writes himself. Say the N word quite a lot and that's aged a little bit weird uh second of all he just doesn't gel into his own movie right he's just not he's just such a weird and i've gone back and forth because i've always heard people hating on his acting in his movies and i I usually kind of don't mind it i don't know this time though maybe i was thinking about it too much but i was watching just thinking oh my god dude it just sticks out like a sore thumb it doesn't ruin the movie by any means it's not even that bad it's just, it definitely, you know, the, the question is what holds this movie back from being even better. That would be even better with any number of other actors in that role, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what, it's just, what else? It's a you rough got, I watch. I mean, Jimmy is just a rough watch. I think his name is Jimmy, but. Um, I think it is. Yeah. It, and it's so, you're right. The acting is not great. The line delivery is not great. Um and everyone around him is putting in such a great performance that you're just like, yeah, man, this is this is a tough hang is kind of the way yeah. you land with it. Um, the basement scene. I don't know what to think of it. I'll be honest. Um, I don't I wouldn't say it holds the movie back. I don't being know if better, it though, does. Because, but like, yeah. you know, the gimp, is he the protagonist of the movie? Is he a stand in for the audience? These are questions that it makes you ask. Um and and sometimes while i'm watching it i feel like the gimp you know i'm just like i feel like i'm stuck (laughs) in this scene and i wish i wasn't yeah i just wish someone killed me with a sword um so yeah yeah and i mean other than that scene i can't think of much i mean in a way you could almost say 
it's not that it holds it back, but it's my least favorite part is the overdose scene because it's so stressful. Like, yeah. And it's so it ratchets jarring. the tension so high. Oh yeah. my gosh. And it's like, it's got the needle dripping the medicine, the countdown, the different f- mm. faces of the people, her waking up like the zombie, you know, and then obviously the needle out of the chest, but then also Tarantino brings it home with a really cool line. Cause he's Tarantino. I actually wrote this one down. Mm. If you're all right, say something. And she says something. something. And I'm just yeah. like, good gravy, Tarantino. Classic. Even now you're like, look at how cool I am. But, what a God. Um, I would I would go further, by the way, in the direction of not not holding the movie back in terms of that's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah, precisely great. because of that, because it ratches the tension so much. Well, And it's one of those um, times that he does in every film where he just flexes pretty much where yeah. he's like, oh, by the way, if you forgot, I can ratchet the tension up to 11. Um, he does. This I think in all the of clearest example like, of that is hey, once upon a time, right? Yeah, 100 percent. 100%. When he when he approaches the ranch and you're like, "Oh, well, I forgot about this." Yeah. Uh you know, I said something to you a few minutes ago speaking of the movie's flaws. It's a difficult movie to assess the flaws because it's one of those movies where a lot of things that I mean, we kind of got into this earlier talking about his girlfriend, uh Bruce Willis's girlfriend, which would be the other part of this one of those that movies, I would say holds the movie back, but go on. <laughs> sure being so mean but 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 it's it's okay well i mean you know this is one of those movies where a lot of things that might be flaws i kind of look at them like i feel like that was on purpose and it's meant to have that effect on me i think that a little bit about the girlfriend i'm not sure i i would have written it differently but i wouldn't have written this movie so you know it's it's like stuff like that It, it because the movie is so decentered and so wild in all these different directions it's hard to assess for me, like, okay, that's wrong. Like, I don't think he wanted to do that. Again, besides Quentin Tarantino's acting, um, there's not much. I, I, I wouldn't. Yeah, it just makes it difficult, you know. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Do you have Do you have anything else you think that that clearly holds it back from being better? Um, no. I mean, other than just to keep harping on that, I, I would also say that section has some pacing issues where it really slows down. In a yeah. way that I think, is I always not forget about Esmeralda, the cab driver, too. Yeah, yeah, and which is such a homage so to long. other movie scenes. Like, obviously, yeah, he's it's like great. Throwing it back, but it's not something that captures me like the rest of the movie does. Which is really my criticism of that entire section is there are great scenes, but I it it loses me a little bit in which the rest of the film sure. continually draws me in and draws me in and catches my eye. You know, so, yeah. I that's totally all agree. I've got. It's a hard movie to criticize. It's I'm mean, like I said, if it's not a masterpiece, it's close. And I would probably call it a masterpiece. I, I, I would too, almost without hesitation. Uh, let me see. I feel like I covered most of my points. Do you have anything else you wanted to, to talk about before we dive into talking points? Yeah, I just got some straight thoughts. I just wanted to throw out there. If yeah. you don't mind. Uh, go first to, go one, to the Tarantino universe is such a weird thing in which you're like, yeah. are they all connected? Obviously, Fox Force 5 is Kill Bill. That's been hit to death. Right. Um, the pilot that Uma Thurman is in ends up becoming the Tarantino movie that Uma Thurman is in, um, right. which is pretty awesome. I don't really have anything to say, was, but even like the so scene good. Yeah. with Willis looking for the samurai sword is like a foreshadowing of where Tarantino is going to go um, yeah. in his later movies. So thought that was neat. 
Um, Small things like uh, the Red Apple cigarettes comes up. Uh, yeah. That's an in-universe brand, apparently. And then other than that, um, let's see. The guy who comes out of the bathroom with the gun in the apartment looks like a poor man Seinfeld. I thought that was an interesting note <laughs> this time around. I've always... No, oh, wait, wait. I've always thought that. <laughs> yeah, I think right? the first time I saw this movie, for a hot second, I thought it was Seinfeld. And in hindsight, that would have been great. You I know, know what? Let's go back. Perfect What's holding casting. this movie back? What's holding this movie back from being even better? It doesn't have Seinfeld in that role. 100%. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Anyways. And then um, another stray thought I just want to throw out there is I had never noticed before that Zed is a mall cop. I actually thought he was a cop. But when I look closer at his uniform, it's just security officer at a mall. Oh which my God, I think is that hilarious. Makes so much more sense. Yeah, he's like a power tripping mall never, cop. Which is I never awesome. realized that. Oh my God. And, and then you know the, what? It never made sense that he was a real cop, anyways. Right? Especially okay. with the motorcycle, yeah, that, you know. Uh, yeah. That added up a lot more for me. Okay. Yeah. And then the last thing is there are just a couple lines that I think are the greatest lines in cinematic history. Um, you know, that is a tasty burger is one of my favorites. Um, say what again, I dare you, I double talk dare you. (laughs) Um, and then obviously my, I think my favorite line of any Tarantino movie is, um, we're about to go after this guy with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. I'm going to get medieval on his ass. Medieval on your ass. It's just unbelievable. (laughs) So, well, that's all I really got. It's had a whole life. That specific line has had a whole life after the movie. Yeah that I, I think that just became a phrase people used and again you know going back to the actors ving rames kills that so hard he's a god yeah beautiful Okay, so we're going into the section, talking points, monologue, something to that effect. We have these little essays we've written, talking about the film, the context of spirituality. Mike, I think you're going to go first this time, right? I am. Yeah, go ahead, whenever you're ready. Okay. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by the final scene of this movie, uh, where there's Ringo and Jules at the table. And it takes such a hard turn from the rest of the film. It becomes this intense philosophical conversation and scene in the midst of a otherwise pretty cool, violent, pulpy stylized movie. And I think in a real way, it it wraps all these themes and all these underlying things that like John said earlier, are obscured together into this question about what truth is and whether that question even ultimately matters. Um, And what I really love about it is what Samuel Jackson goes through in this this scene. Um, he says that he's quoting, uh, as he did earlier in the film, a Bible verse, Ezekiel 25, 17, where he says, the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. And obviously Samuel Jackson says that a lot cooler than I ever could. 
because it's a Tarantino movie. But what fascinates me is that uh, this Bible verse is obviously wrong. In fact, you actually kind of, I noticed this for the first time on this rewatch, the guy in the apartment bathroom, uh, when it flips back to that scene, actually seems to hint at this with his face. As uh, Samuel Jackson is reciting this verse, he's making this confused look as the verse goes on and on. And that's because the verse is made up. One, it's way too long, so it's obviously not just Ezekiel 25, 17. And two, if you actually study the Bible, it's a weird hodgepodge of a lot of different verses. Yes, Ezekiel 25, 17 is buried in there, but it, it pulls together like Psalm 23 and all these other Bible verses and smashes them together into essentially a biblically sounding work of fiction. And like the movie, it's ultimately pulp, but he doesn't realize that. In fact, he keeps asking people, do you read the Bible? Uh, he keeps asking them that as if he has read the Bible, but he clearly doesn't because if he did, he'd realize he was quoting a work of fiction. And though he does acknowledge that he's never let it impact him, which I think is an important part. He says at one point that it was just a cool thing to say before he puts a cap in someone. And in that, I think it asks that critical question. Does that matter? Does the fact that he's citing a verse that is incorrect, a verse that is basically a, a Frankenstein version of a bunch of Bible verses, does that make his belief or his experience incorrect, meaningless, or wrong? What is the spiritual significance of this verse? Is it fake because he misquotes it? Or is its meaning found in how it impacts changes and leads him to ultimately become a different person by the end of the film? And what that really gets at, I think, in the spiritual tradition is we always have this conversation of mysticism, uh, the belief in mystery, the belief in what story does to us and how we interact with that in a lived experience of faith versus treating life or spirituality as an intellectual exercise, a list of beliefs that you have to check off and get right and memorize that in some way earn you um, a higher status, even if they don't change you. And ultimately, I think we see this battle of those two ideas play out between Vincent and Jules in this really fascinating scene, right? Vincent is obsessed with whether the miracle was real, whether it actually happened, whether it really was divine intervention. But Jules seems to realize that the realness of the miracle isn't even necessarily if God made the bullets go a different way, which of course he didn't. These people are horrible human beings. But the miracle ultimately was that he lived from it and then he lived as if it was a miracle. And then that in believing that story and finding himself in that reality, he found that it changed him in response to it, that it changed him in a way that nothing else seemingly had in Jules' life. And Jules is able to find radical transformation from this while Vincent rejects it. And he ends up finding this radical meaning in it from the life experience that he just had in the supposedly made up scripture. He even says, I was eating my muffin, replaying the incident in my head and had what alcoholics call a moment of clarity, that he hit a bottom, that he faced his mortality, that he hit something that he couldn't understand, mystery, the impossible, luck, serendipity, whatever you want to say. And at that bottom, he had wrapped around himself a story that let him find true meaning from it and to change his reorient or reorientate himself around it. And suddenly, 
when he's willing to do that, this supposedly false quote becomes the very vehicle for him processing an experience that could have broken him, that could have torn him apart in terms of how it actually spoke to his reality, who he is, what he does, and most importantly, who he wants to become. He says, I never gave much thought to what it meant. Again, he just thought it was something cool to say to someone before he killed them. And he's forced to put this reorientation of his experience into practice immediately, right? He filters this entire interaction with Ringo, an interaction that would have led to him just killing the person in the past. He filters all of that through this verse and the meaning he has found in this reflection. And he actually ends up treating it almost as a parable, as the parables of, of Jewish literature were supposed to be treated, not as things that give us clear answers or certainty, but things that are meant to make us wrestle, things that are meant to draw us in, make us find ourselves within them, find ourselves in each character, and suddenly have a revelation on the other side of what's going on inside of us and what we need to change moving forward. You see him walk through three different scenarios. He says at one point he believed that Ringo was the evil man, that he was the righteous man, and that the gun was the shepherd protecting him in the valley of darkness. He says, oh, but maybe, no, maybe you're the righteous man and I'm the shepherd and it's the world that's evil or selfish. And each time he's putting himself in a positive role. But because of this bottom he's found, because of this way that this verse has gotten stuck in him and he's filtered that bottom through it, he says, but that ain't the truth. The truth is you're the weak and I am the tyranny of evil man. But I'm trying. I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. You see, in that wrestling, in that willingness to find himself in this open-ended, <laughs> fake verse, in this story that he's given himself to make sense of what he's gone through, see, in the themes of it, especially in the brokenness of it that he's felt through this miraculous event, it's that willingness and that openness that allows him to find himself in the character of the story that actually makes him realize his need for change and to begin to actually and tangibly be transformed concretely in terms of how he treats other human beings in a different way, in his desire to become the shepherd that he has understood in a radically different way than he would have in the past. I think it's, it's powerful. The experience that he just had, his bottom and the verse collide, and they make him ask, what should I do in this moment? Should I kill the man as the righteous man with the gun? Or should I become a different character in this story and go far beyond what I even need to do in this moment, not to just save their lives, but to bless them and recognize that I am changed when I do so. And he says, I don't want to kill you. I want to help you. And what's ultimately fascinating about this dichotomy that the movie creates between these characters is that it leaves it open-ended on Jules's end. Vincent's path of that concrete fundamentalism, that concrete certainty, is ultimately set by the time we see this scene. We know that his refusal to be changed by this moment, to ask those questions, to enter a different story, to become a different character, leads him to death. That he continues on the life and ultimately is killed in a bathroom by an Uzi and Bruce Willis. We never know what happens to Jules. All we know is that he leaves and goes a different way. And in that, I think the movie embraces mystery and mysticism. And I think this movie speaks to us about that path of change. 
It makes us recognize that it's not through clear answers or certainty or even necessarily being right, but rather through falling down, bottom, and a willingness to wrestle, to find a different story for our lives, and to allow it to make us want to be different characters in the story we tell ourselves about others in our world. And I just think that's powerful. And honestly, what it hits me with is it reminds me that our stories only really matter when they produce that kind of change. When they make us realize that we're not the good guys all the time in our stories, that our falling down show that we're sometimes the wicked or the broken, but that in that we have the potential not to be a righteous man, not to just be right in a different way, but to be a shepherd, to be someone who is other focused and to change how we treat our neighbor. And in that mystery, I think this movie just nails it. And it leads us as jewels to walk out of our previous self into a world that we can't be certain of, that we can definitely know is better than where we've come. And I think that's cool. Yeah, man. I think that's really, really great stuff. I'll be honest, if nothing else, I never thought about the way that his processing at the end is emblematic of what parables are supposed to be like, right? Yeah. And as he follows that train of maybe I am this part of the parable and you are that part. And also the way that it takes having had that experience in the morning for him to realize he is the bad part of the parable. And it's something that we would talk about all the time when we both worked in the same church that, you know, there's always this move by people to place themselves as the, the, the good part of any given story. Yeah. And there's a, this unbelievably challenging part of spirituality that often is, is asking you, can you see yourself as the villain here in this context as the tyranny of evil men? Yeah. I never thought about that. That's great stuff. No, absolutely. I mean, I just taught this pat or a couple Sundays ago, probably by the time this comes out months ago um, on the good Samaritan and how convicting it is when you read it from, kind of like the perspective that I think a first century Jewish rabbi would want you to read it in, which is our first instinct is to find ourselves in the Good Samaritan and to be like, oh, we're the good guys in this story. Um, We're the ones who come and help the other person. Or at worst, we say, oh, we're kind of like the priest and the Levite who walk past the beaten man on the side of the road. But ultimately... It's like one, a a Jewish person in Jesus' audience wouldn't identify with the Samaritan because they were the enemy, right? And they would be shocked that a Levite and a priest didn't help. And I think the challenge of the parable actually ends up becoming, are you willing to believe that your enemy has the potential to heal you? That your enemy has the potential to bring you what you need if you would just get past your bias enough to see them as a human being, right? Right. And suddenly the parable becomes convicting because you're not the hero of the story. 
you're the victim. You're the you're the man on the side of the road being aided by the worst possible enemy you could imagine. And in, in that, if yeah. you're willing to find yourself in that character, your biases are exposed. You have to wrestle with that. You have to ask hard questions about how you dehumanize people about the other. And then the parable actually has an impact on you. And that's what parables are supposed to do. Right. Um, and we mm-hmm. neuter them by being the good guys in them. That's just, that's just not the point. Yeah. Yeah. That's solid. Uh, do you have any follow-up questions for me from the, from the essay? I think one of the things that really struck me this time that I never really, I guess, thought about before this rewatch is how deeply Tarantino in that last scene sets up Vincent and Jules as that dichotomy of yeah. the one who has certainty, who filters all of his existence through his mind, his own intellectual capacity. And then this one who's kind of open to mystery or open to not knowing who's open to paradox and willing obviously jules is willing to say i have no clue but i'm going to be changed by this anyway basically by the wrestling right um so how do you react or interact with this i guess this uh dual duality of mysticism and then that kind of intellectual experience because i don't think you or i either of us would say that intellectualism is bad right and i don't think that's what no. he's trying to challenge either but i do think there's an interesting conversation about how those two things can be dichotomy in how that over intellectual pursuit or, or guess filtering of our world can lead to missing it. You could argue, right. Missing the power of the moment. So I don't know. How do you respond to that dualism? I mean, I, I, I always appreciated the metaphor that these different ways of thinking are like tools in a toolbox. And depending on the task at hand, you should be reaching for one or the other but one does not satisfy every task. If I if I'm trying to use a hammer to 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 screw in something, or man, this metaphor would be better if I uh, was more handy. But I think the premise still holds. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think about the idea of intellectualism and mysticism, and I and kind of along those same lines. I think the danger becomes as people prescribe them for everything, and I mean that on both sides. You know, uh, obviously. I guess I won't lump you in with this, but I definitely have a tendency to over intellectualize. And I think there is a, there, there, it's a real challenge, but it's, it's really beneficial for me to every now and then step back and realize that the situation at hand does not really mean my attempts at rational explanation. Yeah. You know, especially the, the most obvious context is especially when it comes to, um, emotional relational situations that rationalism can be beneficial, but often it can, it can obscure you from actually the reality of the situation. You can get hung up on, you know, we talk about this. I think we talked about this last time in the context of in Bruges, you can get so hung up on the rational sort of logical side of justice that you miss the, the power of mercy right and and you know that sounds very abstract but in a very down-to-earth example i can hold on to one way that i've been wronged in a relationship and use that to drive that relationship into the ground when in reality i should i should be more open to looking at this and saying yeah i mean sure rationally intellectually 
I have this place to stand on, but what am I losing by holding on to that so hard? Mm. Um, that's one example where holding on to that intellectualism can, can hurt you. I will say it does happen the other direction too. We don't think about it as much because I think it's a less common worldview nowadays, but I do think it's, it's in, frankly, I've encountered a lot of these people growing up in the Christian community, evangelical Christian community. I think there's plenty of examples of people taking a mystical spiritual approach to problems that do not need it and, and do not benefit from being looked at that way. Yeah, sure. Um, you and I have both talked with each other about our struggles with the way that people approach healing and, and, uh, sickness in the evangelical Christian community. And to be honest, that's probably way too big a can of worms to totally open here. But just to j- j- just to slide the cover back a little bit, just to let one or two worms out. Uh, God, what a gross metaphor. Anyways, yeah, I didn't like that. Just to, yeah, that, that that made me uncomfortable. Just to, just to to poke it a little bit though, I think I've I've always struggled with the idea that that many evangelical Christians will subscribe to of if I do X or Y. I will be rewarded with X or Y thing from God. I think that's approaching the reality of your world or that's approaching certain problems in your world with a quote unquote mystical or spiritual mindset that don't really, and it's not that you shouldn't be thinking about them in spiritual terms, but it's that you shouldn't be resorting to that to avoid, you know, using the intellect that you have or yeah. to avoid, uh, you know, actually coming to terms with it in a way that's not just, I don't want to think about this. Well, in a weird um, way, that's that's an intellectual pursuit of spirituality, right? It's still trying yeah, to turn mystery into a formula that works every time. That is yeah. in my control. I can push this button and then this can happen. Yeah, if I just pray more, yeah. I will be healed. And And I think mysticism always challenges you to live in reality to some degree, to accept what you can't control and to really accept paradox. That's at the heart of it, right? Which is that suffering and blessing exist in the same moment most of the time. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just because you can't come up with a formula to make sense of that doesn't mean it's wrong. I think it's something that mysticism always challenges and, and doesn't mean that if, or, and it reminds us that we just accept that paradox, we can actually be impacted or changed or made better by a moment. Right. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I, I've I, always I found think, that funny where yeah. it's like, there's such an enlightenment thinking and I'm not trying to be mean to the enlightenment down with science. <laughs> um, but there's such yeah. an enlightenment. You've always hated to, science. Yeah. Science. Yeah. There's such an enlightenment style thinking to, if I can just turn spirituality into a formula to get me what I want, then I can make it work every time. And yeah, yeah. It's just funny how it's like the people who hate like scientific method apply it in such a weird way to mystical ideas. That's what I was about to say. I think the ironic thing is the fact that the biggest proponents of that style of thinking are also the people who actively are, who are actively anti-scientific in any other context. I think true mystics and true spiritually awakened people are perfectly content to, and not even content, but, but joyous to embrace um, the, the, the benefits and the usage of science in the scientific theory, uh, or in scientific theory. Um, I've 
you know, again, we, we've talked about this before, but I've gone on record several times about the way that the scientific method is such a beautiful abstraction of how intellectualism works and is such a, and the basis of that being, I cannot know things that I cannot reproduce is such a powerful statement. I think if you really dig into it and there's a reason why I do think it, it works for so many things. I also though, you know, hold that with, but there's things that I don't necessarily want to apply that to. Maybe I could, but I don't want to because it doesn't actually help me in life. Again, getting back to, to where mysticism I think is powerful and with things like relationships and with things like meaning and, and, and different things like that, I think it, it can, it, maybe it can help, but I just find it less, less alluring in those contexts and, and more likely to steer me in a place where I'm going to end up somewhere I don't want to be in the first place. Well, it'd be um, like saying to Jules in that moment, hey, you know that verse is not real, right? And it's like, well, yeah, cool. It's, it's, what's, what's the side effect of that? He just keeps being a murderer? Like, you're like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's Who like, cares? Well, yeah, a literal I, level, I can tell you that's not how this works. That's wrong. Actually, the verse yeah. is this. And it's like, suddenly, the path that made him become, you could even say more godly in a Christian sense, is the fact that he found himself in this fake thing. And... And in a way that there's a power to that image or that story, right? But I just think it's it's fascinating. Number 19. Coincidences to get characters into trouble are great. Coincidences to get them out of it are cheating. That's a quote from Pixar's 22 Rules of Storytelling, 22 unofficial axioms that arguably drive the company's incredible success in storytelling and films. Honestly, if you're interested in anything creative, I highly recommend looking the entire list up. What's so great about reading it and I and returning to it and you know, I honestly return to it probably once a month is that you start seeing non Pixar movies in the same light. You start noticing how many stories follow substantially the same rules, how those rules describe what great storytelling looks like. And so I think about that specific rule number 19 all the time. Again, coincidences that get characters into trouble are great. Coincidences that get them out of it are cheating. It comes up in so many great stories. And the most recent time that I was rewatching Pulp Fiction a couple days ago, I realized how much this movie follows that rule over and over and over again. Flipping through the movie, virtually every episode, virtually every situation could be summarized as characters in control of situation, something totally unexpected befalls them, and they have to figure their way out of it. And every time that thing that happens is just a coincidence. It just happens to happen. Vincent and Mia are on this charming, lovely evening. They're having a great time. She mistakes his heroin for cocaine. It's a coincidence. She happens to see it in his jacket when he's not there. 
She ODs. He has to save her life or almost certainly lose his own. Butch fails to throw a fight. He's ready to run away with his buy-off money, but he doesn't have his watch. He has to return. It was just forgotten. It was just accidentally left behind. So he has to return home to finding it. Then even further, he's driving back. He thinks he's okay. And the man who's trying to kill him just happens to be walking by. And the rest uh, proceeds from there. Jules and Vincent are on what should by all means be a normal hit job. And first, an unknown shooter nearly kills them except for a divine miracle. And then their compatriot is accidentally shot in the face. And then finally the diner they get that they get breakfast in is held up by a gunman. Coincidences to get characters into trouble are great. Tarantino knows this and he knows not to let them out of trouble too easily. The tension, the dynamic, The storytelling of Pulp Fiction is entirely in how these characters respond to the circumstances which are thrust upon them, which happen to happen, which coincidentally get them into trouble. And if I can zoom out of the movie for a moment, I think part of why that storytelling rule exists is because it connects to how a lot of us see the world around us. Characters that get into trouble by coincidence are inherently relatable because we're used to circumstances being thrust upon us. And it's key, I think, that in Pulp Fiction, before these characters get into trouble, so to speak, they're in situations that they think are under their control. Because that's how we are, too. So many of us walk around with an illusion of control hanging around our heads. And the power of circumstantial coincidental random problems is that they totally break that illusion there's this great phrasing of spirituality that i've i've used a couple times and i really love it it's this idea that spirituality is not intended to change the world around you but to change the way you respond to it this is also why in several religions and spiritually minded practices like aa You have to have this breaking point. A breaking point experience is, if not strictly speaking necessary, a common entryway into deeper spirituality because you need that moment of total loss of control to accept the fact that you never really had it to begin with. And that takes us back to Pulp Fiction and back to Jules. I'm going to be stomping a little bit on Mike's territory, but I think part of the strength of the movie is that you can read the same situation with different things in mind. Because I do think Jules is arguably the most fascinating character Tarantino has ever written. The crux of that final episode and the final dramatic tension has to do, has to do with Jules, for want of a better term, spiritual conversion. The hit job that the movie opens with you know, is immediately followed up with an attempt on Jules and Vincent's life. Now, if you think really carefully about that scene, before the shooter comes out of the bathroom, Jules is in total control of the situation. He's dictating who is talking, what they're saying, whether or not they move, etc. The whole thing is a power play, and it's an incredibly effective one. And I think it works to highlight the moment that comes right afterwards, because Jules is in total power and total control, and it doesn't matter because the gunman coincidentally in the bathroom would have killed him anyways. 
the situation was never really in control to begin with. Jules and Vincent argue about divine intervention, but to a degree, I think what they're arguing about is how they control their own lives. Vincent wants to shrug off the incident. He wants to go on as if it didn't really happen because he wants to maintain the illusion of control over his own circumstances. He wants to go on believing that he's not at the mercy or vengeance of fate or a higher power or whatever you want to call it. Jules, meanwhile, sees that moment for what it is, a call to surrender his fake control. Vincent is shocked that Jules's plan for life is so open-ended. Basically, I will walk the earth, he says. Vincent tells him that will make you a bum, and he can't stand the idea. It's the most upset he gets, arguably, the whole film. But a few moments later, Jules is proved correct when the holdup happens, and once again, they're thrust into an unwitting circumstance. And notice how Jules's surrender is what makes the situation a clean one. Two hours, two hours before, as he tells Ringo, he would have killed them both and he wouldn't have thought anything of it. But his experience tells him that it's okay to surrender. It's okay to sacrifice your control because, again, you never had any in the first place. So rewatching the movie this time, that was something I kept going back to. The way that it uses these coincidences to put characters into situations in which they don't have control and the way that it forces them to reckon with how they respond to the situations that are being thrust upon them. So yeah, that was something I I connected to this time. Um, I don't know if you have any any stray thoughts on that. I have a couple of questions if you if you would like a little prompting. Yeah, shoot. No, I love it. I think yeah. that's spot on. So yeah, firstly, you know, I, I kind of mentioned offhand. I think we relate to this idea of the storytelling principle that coincidences that get you into trouble are good i think we relate to that because that's how a lot of us see our world do you agree do you think that's how people generally see their world that the the, the situations they find themselves in are being thrust upon them is that how you see the world um yes and no i mean i think when i try to think of control i think a healthy understanding of control is that um on my best days i live my control exists in a hula hoop, you could say, around my body, right? Which is that yeah. I am only in control of myself. And there is a healthy, and even then I'm not always because of past traumas or tapes that I don't see or patterns or whatever else, right? Um, but there is, in my healthiest moments, a, a realization that I can control how I respond to a moment or I can control how I behave or how I treat a human being, right? Or whether I choose to think a certain thing about somebody. So in a sense, it's, there is this important concept that control is possible. Like I, and I, I bring that up to say when I'm unhealthy, 
I think of all the things that flow out of my brokenness as coincidences. Like yeah. I could break a vase in the like, or it's that classic meme of him, sh- the guy shooting someone and then said, <laughs> how could Obama have done this? Right. Yeah. Where yeah. I'm just like, how could I have gotten a DUI, but I'm drinking all the time. Right. And driving a car. Yeah. And it's like, that's not a coincidence. We look for coincidence sometimes in areas where it's not. It's the truth of the matter is it's us. It's it's a pattern of behavior. It's something that we have done to get us into a situation. Um, yeah. Often a situation that we convinced ourselves actually in the unhealthy form of control that we could always manipulate ourselves out of. I knew yeah. a DUI would always be possible and I didn't get a DUI. This is just the thing. But I knew that was always possible if I kept driving drunk, but I always told myself I'm in control and I always will be able to uh, avoid cops or I'm a good enough driver to never actually get caught or whatever else. Right. And then suddenly that reality catches up to us and we're like, how did this happen? Right. Um, Yeah. So I think there is a, a, a no to that, but there's also a yes. I mean, the truth of the matter is we live in delusions where we think that we can make people do something or we think we can make our world go a specific way and all you need is an unexpected cancer diagnosis or a, a, someone in your family dies tragically or a loved one is lost or or someone else has a mental breakdown or and, and suddenly you'll realize oh i have no control outside of myself and yeah. there are such things as that coincidence that comes around and all we can control in that moment is how we respond to it so yeah yeah it's a real paradox it's- there It's funny too, listening to how you're describing that. And and I hadn't even thought of this, but you know, there's even this degree, I think to which spirituality is about reversing our notions of control, because I think you, you kind of hinted at this. A lot of us are walking around believing that we do have control over a lot of these external things and that we don't have control over our response to them. Yeah. So you kind of yeah. said it like, like there's this attitude, I think in, in unhealthy people. And I've certainly done this myself of why, well, you know, it wasn't my fault that I, that I did this, that I responded that way that I said this thing. It was all these other things being forced upon me. And then counterintuitively, we'll say the opposite about other things like, Oh, you know, I should, I should be able to stop, you know, or to make my life look like this. I should be able yeah. to, to you know position my world so that i don't so that we don't get sick and that we are you know healthy in this way and i have these kinds of relationships and i live in this kind of circumstance and i think a lot of spirituality is about reversing that looking at the things that happen to me from a from a broad perspective and and releasing control because i don't have it i can't guarantee that i'm going to be happy i can't guarantee that i'm going to have everything i want I can't guarantee that we're not, that I'm not going to get sick and I'm not going to lose relationships and whatever, but I can take ownership over my response and over the things I do. And I can work on those and it's not about becoming perfect, but I can make those more like what I want to be and make my response more like what I, how I want my responses to, to be in this world. Um, yeah, I think that's good stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was curious too, this is a little bit more lighthearted, but have you seen that kind of storytelling uh, rule? What are, can you think of other examples where that comes up in movies? I can actually tell you, I guess I'm not asking so much as trying to set up a couple examples that I have that I love. Cause that's one of my favorite 
things I've ever read. And again, I, I have to reiterate, you should go read that whole list. It's great. But this idea of coincidences that get characters into trouble is a good thing. And I think actually the prime example of this is probably Breaking Bad, which is yeah, one of the sure. best written sh- things ever. Um, but the way that that show works that, you know, I, I guess this will be a spoiler. So if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, I guess just skip forward like two minutes or something. But yeah, and, um, and get your crap together. And go yeah, get your life together. Bad. What are you doing? One of the greatest moments in the whole show is in season five. Walt is actually clean. He, he He's basically gone away scot-free what happens though is is uh hank goes to the bathroom in their house and picks up a book that is signed by a former associate of a drug lord and it starts the chain reaction that will be the complete undoing of walt this actually happens several times in the show but that's the most extreme example that the coincidence that gets the character into trouble is just masterful storytelling. Absolutely. Because again, again, it doesn't coincidence that get characters out of trouble. It's cheating. It's when you're like, Oh, that was just dumb. Why did that happen? Um, but that kind of thing that, that forces him into these awful situations is just so brilliant. So I don't know if you have anything about that, that storytelling role or, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always my least favorite. I mean, it's actually kind of like, how do you know that you're watching a kid's movie is like the classic hero arrives at the last moment to save the day. Um, sure. And you're sure. always kind of left being like, well, what if they had missed that by like 10 minutes? And when this all these it's like when the all these people have died, yeah. like the heroic ex machina kind of thing is just so often a crutch and it's not always bad. I mean, like I said, it just makes the movie feel childish to me. Um, yeah. And is what it is. I mean, I, I, we just talked about this movie last week though, but I think in Bruges is a classic example of coincidence, getting you into trouble, right? How masterful yeah. that movie, either with the young boy who gets shot through the priest or him punching the Canadians. And then the Canadians find yeah. him on the bus and it brings him back to Bruges. Right. And so much of that movie is driven by masterful storytelling around that central concept that yeah. the, the most profound turns in movies are actually you can almost just simplify it as are not people getting out of trouble it's people getting into trouble which is a little yeah, dark absolutely but, um but yeah I mean, the coincidence it's, it's what creates it's dramatic tension so yeah yeah but i guess that that coincidence part like you said is what makes us find ourselves in it because yeah in a weird way we're also kind of i don't want to say narcissistic people or depressive people but human beings we naturally we very rarely even identify coincidences in our life that are positive we're like, yeah. well, that was so lucky that I got this job, even though I really wasn't qualified if I was self-honest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we always tend to go, why is this happening to me only with bad things, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. So I think there's an interesting thing that we connect to those as things that get us into trouble because that's how we tend to view our lives as largely self-centered people. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, no, but you're but you're right, yeah, 100%. But yeah, I was trying to think of a, a, a couple other good examples of movies that do that poorly honestly oh i know I, I can think of a great example yeah, of a movie them, that, that does the opposite uh actually maybe and this one is so good because it actually penetrated pop culture in terms of what a dumb storytelling move this was but that that classic film batman versus superman oh yeah in which, oh did yes you actually, martha did you ever actually see that yeah, yeah watched it with the you, fact John. that i forgot that I, I think i try to forget everything about that movie to be honest with you but <laughs> that is it permeated pop culture. And to be honest, I don't think many people were very good at articulating why that 
so that fails so spectacularly. But this is why, if you're ever curious why that doesn't work, why it feels so dumb to you as a viewer and so annoying that the thing that resolves this conflict is the fact that they happen to have the same, their mothers happen to have the same first name. And he says something about Martha, which causes Batman to stop hitting, stop attacking him. That's why it feels so bad. It feels like cheating. It's a coincidence that gets this characters out of this difficult situation. And you're just left thinking, what the hell? Why did I watch this? <laughs> why was that the dramatic payoff? I'm annoyed and sad and I want my money back. Yeah. Um, right. That's the best example I can think of. It's, again, especially because it permeated pop culture so, so thoroughly. Everyone knew that was bad. Um, that is a brilliant example. Me, yes. Martha. <laughs> Martha. He's like, why did you say that name? That's my Ben Aff- That's my Batflick impression. Okay. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We do have one last question we've each prepared. Uh, before we get to that, next time, Mike, what movie are we going to be covering? We are going to be uh, covering one of the modern classics of action films, which is John Wick, A Boy and His Dog. John Wick. So uh, really excited. Maybe, maybe the biggest cultural impact of an action film in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe so since Die I'm, Hard. Maybe since Die Hard. For a pure action film, I think that's yeah. a pretty decent argument. Uh, so we will cover. I mean, Hunt for October did come out after Die Hard. So, you know, <clears> you got to. <throat> You gotta check yourself a little bit. There's that button um, again. But yeah, definitely tune into that. Before we go, though, some final questions, Mike. What do you got? Well, I'd be remiss if we did not ask this, and I can't believe we didn't bring it up earlier. But what's in the briefcase? Like, <laughs> obviously, it's a homage to um, the Ark of the Covenant, like to some degree, and like, um, wait, I'm I sorry, what'd you say? It's a, it's an homage to the Ark of the Covenant from like Indiana yeah. Jones, you know, or something like that. I, so I, What's in it? there's a couple answers here. There's a boring answer. I don't know if you've heard this before. The boring answer is that everyone always says is it's the diamonds from Reservoir Dogs. Mm. It's kind of boring. It's kind of cool though. Yeah. I only neat. say boring because that was the first thing I ever heard. So I've heard that for about 10 years now, right? Or, or 15 yeah. years or something. But, um, so that's the, that's the basic one. Everyone says, I'll give you the other one, though, that I've always liked. Uh, so 666 opens up the briefcase, remember? Yeah. And Marcellus Wallace has a Band-Aid on the back of his head. I did once read a fan theory that it contains his soul. Oh, which, there you go. Right? It's kind of fun. What do you think is in there? I like to think the gimp's in there, but okay. um, <laughs> but I think I'm going to go with the Ark of the Covenant. That uh, I'm actually going to combine. Oh, go ahead. No, just that it's a soul sucking machine if you actually <laughs> stare into it too deeply. But I'm gonna combine the two and say it is the Gimp's soul. There Can you we go. Live with that, yeah, yeah I'll I, take I'm it. happy with that. Great, Publish my it. question. <laughs> we'll run it. I'll put that on Reddit. We'll get a thousand upvotes. It'll be great. Um, my question is in some ways similar. Uh, they talk about the pilot to Fox Force Five that didn't end up getting made. My question to you is. Would you watch it? But I'm actually going to split it off into two different questions. The first is, would you watch it if it was a night? So this was 1994. If this was a 1993 uh, cable kind of show, (laughs) 
But my second question is, would you watch if it was today a Netflix show? Because if you think about it, those are very different TV shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like, so if it, would you if watch it the 1993 one? No, that sounds terrible. Um, it does. The joke I, is I rough. think I'd watch one episode. And yeah, then probably I mean, ditch it. Yeah. No. It would become I a cool classic. Uh, there's way too much content. You, I wouldn't do it. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's I wouldn't. fair. And as a Netflix show, I mean it's basically the question of would you watch Kill Bill as a Netflix show? Right. And that was gonna be my response is we're kind of asking if you would watch Kill Bill, especially if it was if it was modern, if it was recent. But it's I think it's more interesting if you would watch Kill Bill serialized, right? Um Yeah, I guess yeah. Like before kill bill one you have a serialized version of her life before that moment and i think i would yeah i think that I would mean, probably be i think it'd be really tongue-in-cheek it would probably be uh pretty violent and yeah. if tarantino was behind it i'd be all in i mean i kill bill is kind of, whenever i'm feeling a little cute like i make kill bill my favorite tarantino movie i don't right? think it's his best but i kind of think and, and i'm combining them one and two I yeah. kind of think that some days I'm like, oh, these may be his best movies or my favorite. So, yeah, it's a that's an easy yes for me on, on the, the modern version of it. Uh, 1993, I, I actually do. The more I think about it, I would have watched at least some of that because it would have become a cult classic. And I usually try to watch cult classics and at least try to get into them once just to see what the, the buzz is about. Uh, so I'd be all over that. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. Cool. I think we covered it. Pulp Fiction, a classic, uh, three out of five needs less Bruce Willis's girlfriend. Yes. We're happy with that. Okay. Oral pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. That's honestly what else needs to be said. Uh, again, I'm Jonathan Devine joined by Mike Overstreet. Thank you guys for listening. Mm-hmm.